chapter 1, we'll pick it up in verse 13 where we left off last week. While you're finding that, a couple of other quick announcements. Next Sunday is our uh, congregational meeting. Um, so it'll be happening right after this service. We've got an exciting announcement uh, for that. So I'd encourage you to stick around for that next Sunday. Um, also, uh, last year we did, uh, members of the church wrote devotionals through the Gospel of John. And we put them together into a book and we did a, a combine them with a spiritual disciplines exercise. We called it uh, Remove the High Places. And I got a ton of great feedback from the church about that. Everyone loved reading the devotionals that other church members had written. And so we, uh, the feedback was so good that we did it again this year. It's, this time it's called A Clean Heart. And uh, these devotionals are from the Psalms. And they are written by members of Lakeview Church. Uh, it's exciting because we have people from every generation uh, that have contributed, including some teenagers that have contributed this year. So it's really great. Um, and it's exciting to do a couple of key differences uh, it's only seven weeks instead of nine. Last year it was nine weeks. We're going to do it roughly concurrent with the seven weeks uh, of Lent leading up to Easter. And then um, there's not a whole regimen of spiritual disciplines. We're just saying, hey, fast something for Lent this year. So you don't have to take cold showers and do all that stuff. Um, you're welcome. But anyway, uh, the books are available today for $5. That just basically covers the cost of printing and shipping. We're not making any money off of these. And if $5 is a little bit much, we'll just give it to you for free. So anyway, you can pick those up. Uh, we'll start that in February. Uh, and I think that's the only announcements that I have at the moment. So uh, let's jump into 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. Uh, starting uh, where we left off last week, it says this, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the virtues of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. We're in a series through the letter of 1 Peter, and one of the main themes of this series is how to live as a Christian in a society that is not a Christian society. And so we've titled the series, Living as Exiles. Because as God's people, we are called to live differently. And when we live differently than the world around us lives, we face social exclusion. We face uh, mocking and ridicule. 
Uh, and we see that playing out in our society as Christianity falls further and further out of favor with what is considered popular opinion. Right? And so Peter was writing to a group of Christians that were scattered throughout the Roman Empire, not a Christian society, and he was telling them how to live as Christians. Last week we said, uh, we looked at living with hope. This week, Peter makes a, a really startling claim. And he builds on what he talked about last week. And the claim that he says is, our identity as born-again children of God, that identity is the basis and foundation for ethics and morality. What we say is right or wrong, just or unjust, good or bad, that comes from who we are as the children of God. That's the basis of ethics and morality, right and wrong. Not consensus, what everybody thinks is right. Not individual, whatever I feel is right. But what God's word says and who we are in Christ. That determines what is right and wrong. See, in verse 13, he says, therefore. Whenever you see the word therefore in the Bible, you always ask. What is it there for? What is it there for, right? Uh, so he's looking back. At the section from last week, since we've been born again into a living hope, because of that, therefore, he says, as obedient children, in verse 14, since who we are now is born again as obedient children, therefore, as he who called you is holy, that's God, you also be holy. He's telling us to live with holiness. And in this passage, he's going to, to show us what it means to be holy, why God cares about our holiness, and how we can live with holiness. That's, that's the breakdown of the passage, and, and we're going to dig into it. First, let's jump right in. What does it mean to be holy? If we're supposed to live as holy people, live with holiness, be holy like God is holy, what does it mean to be holy? And to summarize Peter's answer, we might say it this way. To be holy means to live for God rather than for self or society. To be holy means to live for God, not for self and not for society. God's children are to take after their heavenly Father. See verse 13, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Not on yourself, not on society. Set your hope fully on Him. Live for God, not for self. We're supposed to, to be sober-minded, he says. See, God's children are not enslaved to self-indulgence. But rather, we live with self-control. The world around us doesn't live that way. We live in a society that is dominated by self-indulgence, by going after whatever desire they might have. Society's ethic is, if it feels good, do it. Right? If, if I have a desire, it must be good. In fact, if you have a desire and you don't fulfill it, you're sinning against yourself. You're not being true to yourself. Right? You do you. How many times have we heard people say, well, uh, if I have these desires, they must be good. God made me this way. So how can it be wrong? Right? Society is enslaved by self-indulgence. But we're called to exercise self-control. And how can our desires be wrong? Well, somehow we've forgotten the doctrine of sin. Sin corrupted human nature. So, of course, we are born with sinful desires. 
Just because I was born with a desire doesn't mean, well, God made me this way, so it must be right. No, no, no. I'm, my nature is corrupted by sin. We're not born as perfectly innocent, good little blank slate babies who are then twisted and corrupted by an evil world. We're born with sinful desires. Absolutely we are. We shouldn't be surprised by that. And Peter says in verse 14, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Not every desire is a good desire. Right? And, and just because I have a desire doesn't mean that I have to indulge that desire. I'm not forced to pursue that. I'm not enslaved by self-indulgence. That's how the world lives. God calls us to be free, to exercise self-control, to live not for ourselves, but to live for God. Christopher Yuan is a professor, or was a professor at Moody Bible Institute. He's also taught at Wheaton College and, and other places. He's published a number of books. Uh, one of them is this book called Holy Sexuality and the Gospel. Excellent book about what the Bible teaches about human sexuality. Uh, and what you should know about Christopher Yuan is he is a Christian who lives with same-sex attraction. He has a, a, a story, uh, his story of uh, coming to faith in Christ uh, he documented that in the book, Out of a Far Country. Excellent book. This is a man who loves Jesus, struggles with same-sex attraction, and here's what Christopher Yuan says. Holiness is not the absence of sinful desire. Holiness is choosing what God says is right in spite of sinful desire. That's what holiness is. I have this sinful desire, but I recognize it's not right, so I'm going to choose what God says is right. That's holiness. That's what living for God rather than for self is all about. Peter says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Don't be conformed to self and don't be conformed to society. Be conformed to God. Just like God is holy, that's what we're supposed to be. Don't just do and be and say whatever society around you tells you to do and be and say. No, do what God does. Be who God says you are. Say what God says. Live for God, not for self, not for society. Be conformed to God. Don't be the best version of you. Be the clearest reflection of Jesus. See, if I make my life's goal to be the clearest reflection of Jesus, I will also end up being the best version of me. But I've got to set my sights on the right target. If I make actualizing myself the goal, I'll never make it there. But if I make Christ my goal and being the clearest reflection of Him, then I will end up being the best version of me. That's what it means to be holy. To live for God rather than self or society. To be the clearest reflection of Jesus that you can. The next thing that Peter talks about in this passage is, why does God care about my holiness? Why does it matter what I do in the privacy of my own home? Why does God care what I look at on my phone? Why does God care who I wake up next to in the morning? Why does God want to meddle in my private life? Right? Maybe, maybe it's not important what I do in the sheets, Maybe God cares more about what I do in the streets 
Right? Isn't it more important that rather than running off and, and getting on uh, the bandwagon of, of conservative whatever, isn't it more important to go out into the streets where people are hurting and dying and hungry and hopeless? Shouldn't we feed the hungry and clothe the naked? Shouldn't we fight for racial equality and social justice? Why does God care so much about what I do in the privacy of my own house? And Peter shows us the answers. One of them is God cares about your holiness because he loves you. He loves you enough to rescue you from a futile way of life. See verse 18? Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. Not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are now in God. See, God loves you enough to rescue you from the futile ways of life that you were born into in our society. The world's way of life is empty and meaningless and hopeless. It's temporary. It's fading. It only leads to death. Right? Why does it matter if I'm kind to my neighbor? In a few years, he's going to die, and he's not going to remember that I was nice to him. And a few years after that, I'm going to die, and nobody's going to remember that I was nice to my neighbor. And a few years after that, the world's going to burn up, and we're all going to die. So why does it matter if I'm nice to my neighbor? Why does it matter if I go out and campaign for racial reconciliation and equality? Because a few generations from now, the whole planet's going to burn up and we're all going to die. So does it really matter if we have justice uh, for a generation or two before everybody burns up and dies? Does, does that really matter? Like, why does it matter if we try to feed hungry children? They're just going to grow up and die someday and, and the planet's going to burn up and we're all going to die someday. So why does it matter if we feed hungry children or fight for racial uh, equality or stand up for social justice or any of these other things? There's no point. The whole world's going to burn up and we're all going to die and that's the end. Society has no hope, no purpose, no significance. Right? That's why everybody just lives for themselves. That's why we're dominated by self-indulgence because that's the only thing that we have to hold on to. The world's way of life is futile and meaningless and empty and it only leads to death. And you say, gosh, that's awfully harsh. Well, here's an example. A story from the, published in the Washington Post this past week. Did you know that there have been 39 mass shootings in the United States mm. in 2023? 39. Now, a mass shooting is defined as any time there are at least four people, not counting the shooter, who are injured or killed. So a shooter injures or kills at least four other people. There have been 39 of them. In four weeks. Furthermore, there has been a 60% increase in the number of minors committing homicide in the last five years. The number of kids killing people is up 60% in five years. 39 mass shootings in four weeks. Right? I, I don't think our society knows what it's doing with life. This is the product that we get. So when I read stories like that, or some of the stories I shared last week about suicide being at an all-time high and, and uh, substance abuse issues and all that stuff, 
when I read stories like that, what I say is, look, society has really lost all its credibility to tell me how I should live my life. When college professors or politicians or news anchors or musicians or athletes or actors or some other celebrity or some YouTuber or whatever, when they get on and they say, this is what social justice means, this is what's right, this is what's wrong, this is what you should believe about your body, this is what you should believe about everybody else's bodies, this is what sexuality is, this is what marriage is, I'm like, I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure I'm buying that hook, line, and sinker because look at what it produces. 39 mass shootings in four weeks. 60% more teenagers killing other people. First graders shooting their teachers. I mean, is this really what we want for our, for our families, for our lives? I'm not so sure that the world's way of life is working. Society's lost all its credibility to tell me what I should think and how I should live. Ever seen the the uh, uh, commercial where the mom takes her kid, I don't know, he looks like maybe 9 or 10 years old, into the cell phone store and she says, you can pick any phone you want. And, and everybody's like, oh yeah, that's totally normal. Give your 10-year-old a smartphone. Right? Despite all of the research that shows how devastating handing a smartphone to a 10 or 11 or 12-year-old can be. It, it, it can be horrifyingly devastating. But we say, well, you know, if my 12-year-old doesn't have a smartphone, all his friends will make fun of him in school because they all have smartphones. If my 12-year-old's not on TikTok, none of his friends will talk to him. When I was a kid, my dad used to say, if everybody jumped off a cliff, would you jump off a cliff? Apparently in our society, we're like, woo! <laughs> right? You missed it. The way of society doesn't work. He just it jumped off the work. stage. It's not producing hope and life and meaning and purpose. <laughs> Things aren't getting better because we've rejected God. They're getting worse. The further away from God that we get, the further down our society goes. And God knows that. And he wants to rescue you from a futile way of life. That's why he sent Jesus to die on the cross for you. The world's way is fading. Peter says it like this in verse 24. All flesh is like grass and its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Jesus came and gave his life to rescue you from a futile, meaningless, empty way that only ends in death. But God cares about your holiness not just because he loves you. He cares about your holiness because he loves the world too. Yeah, that society that I was just ranting about, God loves them too. They are human beings made in the image of God. Lives worth saving. People worth loving. They're not disgusting people that should be held in contempt and avoided at all costs because they don't put the same political sign that we put in our yard. No, they are human beings made in the image of God, like sheep without a shepherd that need love, that need care, that need uh, shown hope. And God's plan to redeem the world is to send redeemed people into the world. That's what his plan is. God loves our holiness. God cares about our holiness because he loves us and he loves the world. And he cares not just what we do in our, the privacy of our home, but he cares what we do in relation with other people. See verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Yes, uh, conservative Christians tend to get hung up on what people do in the sheets. And we forget about 
the hungry and the hopeless. And liberal Christians tend to get hung up on what people do in the streets and don't mess with my private life. And God says, no, 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 it's both. Because if I'm going to redeem society, I need to send redeemed people into society. C.S. Lewis said it this way, laws cannot make people good. And without good people, you cannot have a good society. He was only repeating what Jesus said in Matthew 12, 33. Jesus said, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. Jesus is speaking here to the religious leaders. He says, you brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you're evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. Jesus is saying is, if you want good fruit, plant good trees. Bad trees don't make good fruit. Sinful people don't build righteous societies. And so Jesus is teaching, look, God's plan to redeem society is to seed society with redeemed people. Born again children of God who are living with holiness. That's his plan, because society is changed one heart at a time, not one law at a time, or one election cycle at a time. It's changed one heart at a time. So God cares about our holiness, because he cares about us, he wants to rescue us from a futile way of life, and he cares about the world. He wants to send redeemed people into society to redeem society. I cannot address the issues of society unless I first address the issues in my own heart. Right? We can't address the problem of racism in society until we deal with the sin of prejudice in our own hearts. We can't address the problem of materialism in society until we deal with the sin of greed in our own hearts. We can't address the problem of broken sexuality in our society until we deal with the sin of lust in our own hearts. If you want good fruit, you have to plant good trees. And we can't be good unless we're born again, unless we become obedient children of God. Born again through the power of the Holy Spirit into a living hope. That's why God cares about our holiness. It's not just for us, it's for the world. The last question is this one, how do we live with holiness? Peter says, first of all, fear God. See verse 17? If you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. He's probably remembering exactly what Jesus talked about in that passage in Matthew 12. We read earlier, the very next verse, Jesus says, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. We love to call on God as Father, Papa, Abba. And that is true, that is who he is, but he's also judge. And we will give an account for every careless word we speak. I don't know about you, that makes me a little bit nervous. So Peter says, look, God's your father, that's true. He's also the judge who judges impartially, so therefore conduct yourselves with fear. Now when we talk about fearing God, that doesn't mean that we should live in terror of God. If If you're born again, child of God, he's your father. What that means is, don't forget who's boss. And it ain't me. It's not you. Right? God is father, God is boss. And and sometimes I tell my kids, don't get too big for your britches. When I was a kid, my dad would say that and would add to it, or you're going to get kicked in the butt. (laughs) 
Don't get too big for your britches. Don't, don't get thinking that you're in charge. Remember who is the boss. It's God. And sometimes God says things that I don't like, but God's the boss. Right? So fear God. Remember who's boss. Secondly, to live with holiness, love one another. Verse 22. Having purified your souls by obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Love one another. Love is the fulfillment of the law. Don't get so hung up on, am I keeping all the rules? If you're living with a respect and acknowledgement of God's authority and you're living in love for one another, you'll end up keeping the rules. You won't have to worry about the rules. Right? Sometimes when Christians talk about uh, living with holiness, we get into legalism. Do this, do this, do this, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. We get hung up on the rules, but that's not the point. Peter said, no, no, don't get hung hung up on the rules. Get hung up on love. Love for one another. Earnestly, from a pure heart. Now, what does it mean to love one another? Somehow I don't think that Disney's answer to love is the best answer. What is love? Well, it's not how great I feel when I'm with you. That's that's a good feeling. But that's not love. And love is not, you complete me. That's not love. Love is also not automatically affirming everything you want or say as good. If I have a friend who's in an unhealthy relationship that's bad for him, it actually would not be loving for me to affirm that relationship. I might say, you know, that's not a healthy relationship. So I can't, because I love you, I cannot affirm that relationship. Right? Love is not affirming automatically whatever anybody wants. No. Here's the best definition of love. Love is devoting yourself to the highest good of another. That's what love is. Devoting yourself to the highest good of another. It's actually not self-centered at all. I love the way I feel when I'm with you, so I'm going to get married to you and then use you to make myself feel happy for the rest of my life. That's not love. Love is doing what Jesus did. Jesus gave his life up for us. He actually died on the cross for us so that we could be rescued and redeemed and restored into a relationship with God. Loving one another means devoting yourself to the highest good of the other. And what is that highest good? It is their relationship with God. I tell couples this all the time when I do premarital counseling. If the the groom-to-be will devote his life to helping his future wife grow closer to God, and the the bride-to-be will devote her life to helping her future husband grow closer to God, we come into the marriage from that perspective. Not, what can I get out of it? How good am I going to feel? Oh, puppy love. We come come into it with each person saying, I'm devoting my life to helping you get closer to God. You will avoid a lot of the issues in marriage. and, And the problems you do face, you can work through them. It doesn't work when we're selfish or self-centered. And I'll, I'll be the first one to acknowledge that I don't always do that all the time. A lot of times I revert to selfishness, to self-centeredness. And when I do, I have to do what Peter says is the third way to live with holiness. Fear God, love one another, and number three, lean on God's grace. We're not perfect. No matter how many rules we make, we can't keep them perfectly all the time. That's why Jesus needed to come and die for us. 
so that He could redeem us and rescue us and give us grace. And we can't fall into the trap of somehow thinking that if I'm good at keeping the rules, God's going to love me a little bit more. And when I fail to keep the rules, God loves me a little bit less. No, no, no. God loved you completely and perfectly before you ever kept a single rule. And when we are living as obedient children of God and we stumble and we fall or we forget and we get selfish... God doesn't love us any less. When we fall down, He's right there to pick us up and put us back on our feet and help us get back on the right track. Because that's the God we serve. Peter said in verse 13, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you. On the grace. He started this whole section about holiness by telling us to set our hope fully on God's grace. Because without God's grace... We can't do any of the rest of it. We can't. We're not good enough to be good enough. Let me put put all this on one slide to kind of summarize what Peter's teaching in this passage. Our identity as born-again children of God is the foundation for our ethics and our morality. So as God's children, we are to live with holiness. That's his argument. Holiness means living for God rather than self or society. Don't be the best version of you. Be the clearest reflection of Jesus. That's holiness. God cares about our holiness because he loves us enough to rescue us from a futile life. And he loves the world. And his plan to redeem the world is to send redeemed people into the world. And we live with holiness by fearing God, loving one another, and leaning on grace when we are not good enough. Let's pray. I'm going to invite the worship team back up. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for inspiring through your Holy Spirit, inspiring Peter to write this letter that is so relevant and timely 2,000 years after it was written. He could have written these words today. And they would be no more relevant than they... (laughs) They're so timely. And God, as we live in a world that is dominated and enslaved by self-indulgence, I pray that you would set us free. Free to to exercise self-control. Free to be who you've called us to be. Free to love others without strings attached. Free to give to others without expecting something in return. Free to stand up for justice and righteousness without needing to be applauded by social media. Free to have virtue, even if nobody else sees it. God, I pray that you would set us free to pursue these things, to live as obedient children of God, to live with holiness. And I fully confess that I cannot do that without your Holy Spirit filling me. I don't think any of the rest of us can. So Lord, would you fill us with your Spirit? Would you call us to, to be who we are in Christ, to have the living and abiding word of God in us, filling us, speaking truth in and to and through us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.